Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, and what a great time of worship that is, and uh, really look forward to doing that together in person uh, next week. This morning, we're going to pick up where we left off last in our study of Romans, but before we do, I want to remind you with, of where we've been so far. When we first started our study, we talked about Paul's progression in his letter to the Romans. He began by describing the depravity of man. Now, this is a really important place to start because until we understand the depth of our sin, we can't really appreciate our need for a Savior. So Paul explains how we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, how there's none righteous, not even one, how we've all turned aside and gone our own way, that sin's curse has infected all of humanity. We learned in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. In fact, it's really just the beginning of the story, because Paul follows the explanation of the depravity of man with a description of God's infinite grace. God demonstrated His love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We learned that we've been justified as a gift of God's grace through the redemption that we have through Jesus Christ. As we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so now in this third section of Paul's letter, he will move from sin to salvation and now to sanctification. Here's where Paul will demonstrate the ongoing work of God's redemption in the lives of those who trust Him. He will explain the miraculous transformation that takes place when we find our identity in Christ. As we will see this morning, that identity is the driving force of our obedience. It's the fuel of our worship. It is the never-ending source of our joy. But the reality is it's also a challenge because we often find our identity in all the wrong places. We can find our identity in people so that we measure our worth by what others think about us, by the relationships that we're in. We can find our identity in possession so that we're measured by what we own. We can find our identity in our performance, seeking to find our identity in what we do instead of what Christ has done. And these misguided pursuits always leave us feeling empty and dry and discouraged. Ultimately, we can only find our identity in the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great statement that he makes when he says, our greatest need is to become who we already are in Christ. Isn't that good? Our greatest need is to become who we already are in Christ. We need to learn what it means to be united with Christ. Understanding that what is true for Him is true for those who belong to Him. If you want to find your true identity, then look closely at the life of Christ. Before we begin this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, thank you for what you've accomplished on our behalf. And I do pray this morning that as we open up your word, that we would be free from distractions and that as Jeff prayed, that our the soil of our soul would be ready to receive the truth of your word and that it would grow and take root and transform how we live. Lord, we have such great truth in our passage this morning. So would you allow it to sink deeply into our hearts as we look at this together? We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would turn to Romans chapter 6, that's where we left off last. And you can read with me beginning in verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And Paul's question here in verse 1 actually goes back to a statement he makes in verse 20 of the previous chapter. So if you want to look at that, it says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So Paul anticipates the potential misunderstanding of what he says there, and so he asks the question, so does that mean that we can just continue in sin that grace may increase? And his answer is definitive, isn't it? He says, may it never be. The NIV says, by no means. The net version of the Bible says, absolutely not. The King James Version says, God forbid. I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? After all, Paul says, why would those who have died to sin still willfully choose to live in sin? If you've been rescued from a dungeon of darkness where you slept on a cold floor, you were given spoiled food that consistently made you sick as your body wasted away from disease, why would you ever go back to that place and make it your home? See, Paul wants us to feel the weight of the absurdity of that kind of decision. The, the fact that you've been given a, 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 a mansion on a hill and you're choosing to live in a cold, dark cave. Why would you do that? If you are a new creation in Christ, why would you willfully choose to live in the old ways of sin? That's not who you are. And, and Paul wants us to, to learn who we are through the lens of the gospel. Look at how he continues in verse 3. He says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, these verses are, are packed with truth, so we don't want to miss anything Paul has to say here. He begins with a really important question. He asks, do you not know? That's an important question because our belief always drives our behavior. Our action flows out of our convictions. And so Paul is actually kind of giving the, the reader the benefit of the doubt here 
by saying to live in sin must be because of some lack of understanding, some lack of knowledge of what Christ has done. It's choosing to live out of the wrong identity. And so Paul makes, make, uh, takes us back to that decisive moment of belief. He wants us to understand the power of our profession of faith. So he says, do you not know those who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Now, we need to pause here because we need to understand that death is a requirement for life. Just think about a, a seed that's placed into the ground before being buried. It it's, has no life. It's dormant. Now, it has the potential for life, but until it's in the ground, until the conditions are right, it, it remains dormant and it's dead. It only comes to life when it's buried. That's when a dead seed sprouts new life. And Paul wants us to see how God ordained baptism to portray this incredible truth. The act of baptism in and of itself has no power, but it does display a very powerful truth. And that truth is that our faith supernaturally unites our life with the life of Christ. So that whatever is true for him is equally true for us. Look at what he says in verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You see, baptism is more than just a profession of faith. It really is a confession of truth. It's a profession of what I believe about God, but it's also the acknowledgement of what I know God believes about me. Having died with Christ, he says we too might walk in the newness of life. We need to learn to see ourselves through the lens of the gospel. And in that verse where he says that we might walk in the newness of life, I want you to pay attention to those two important words again in verse 4, that we might walk. You see, by choosing the word might, Paul is saying that it's possible, that all the potential is there. But it will require us to put that potential into practice. We must walk. It's a decisive decision. We must walk. It's an ongoing dynamic reality. In other words, this is a daily decision. It's a daily decision to recognize our old self was crucified with Christ. That's who you were, not who you are. But, but what does it mean to put to death the old self? How do we do that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul says that the old self was corrupted according to the lusts of deceit. The old self was corrupted by the curse of sin. It was enslaved by the power of sin. In Ephesians, we learn that it was ruled by the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So what we learn from that is that wrong behavior is ultimately coming from wrong beliefs. But when we are united with Christ, the power of the cross 
breaks the chains of sin. Just like we sang about. We are no longer corrupted by the curse of sin. Because the death of Christ ultimately destroyed the power of sin's control. Day by day, the Scripture tells us our outer man is decaying. There's no arguing about that. But it goes on and says, but our inner man, our inner man is being renewed day by day. But again, notice Paul's purposeful language there again at, in verse 6. He says, knowing that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin, there it is, might be done away with. Once again, all the potential is there, but we just have to put that potential into practice. It's a daily process of learning what it means to live in a new identity, setting aside the old self and becoming who we already are in Christ. Look at verse 8, if you would. Now we have died with Christ, we believe, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There in verse 8, it's probably best to read the word if as since. Since we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. See, from the perspective of the gospel, death and life are inseparable. You are dead to sin because you are alive in Christ. See, when God put his plan of redemption into place, he knew that death was necessary, but he also knew that death wouldn't be final. See, death was necessary because it paid the penalty of our sin. The Scripture's clear. The wages of sin is death. And so that's the price that Jesus paid by shedding his blood on the cross. But not because of his own sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He took the punishment that, that we deserved, ultimately. See, death was absolutely necessary but it wouldn't be final. If we are united with Christ in his death, the scripture tells us we are also united with Christ in his resurrection. Paul says we are raised to walk in the newness of life. That's a, an, a, an event that occurs the moment you believe. A, a new creation in Christ where old things have gone and behold, new things have come. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that not only did Jesus abolish death, but he also destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. So if Jesus destroyed the power of the devil, that means the devil has no controlling power over you. Since you have died with Christ, you now live in accordance with the power of Christ. You are ruled by the love of Christ, and, this, and sin no longer has authority over you. Now, sin can still have an influence in your life, but it no longer has control. Paul wants us to see 
that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has an ongoing effect in our life. Because the death he died, Paul says, was once and for all. That means that the work of Christ is complete. And hear me on this. If the work of Christ is complete, then that means if you are united with Christ, then you are complete in Christ. If the work of Christ is complete, that means you are complete in Christ. That's what it means to be united in Christ so that what is true for him is true for those who belong to him. Again, our greatest need is to become who we already are in Christ. Verse 11 says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's telling us that we, we should progressively become everything that God has created us to be. Not because of what we do for God, but because of what Christ has done for us. We may be flawed, but we are completely forgiven. We may be weak, but we are eternally secure. Our identity is determined by what Christ has done, not what we must do. We live now in the first fruits of Christ's completed work. Think of it this way. We know because of what Scripture tells us that one day, and this I can't wait for this day, one day we're going to live eternally in the physical presence of the living God. The Revelation tells us that in that day there will be no need for a sun or a moon because the glory of God will shine brightly upon all of us. But until that day, we also know that God indwells His people through the presence of His Holy Spirit. God's Spirit, then, is the first fruit of God's physical presence in heaven. It's kind of a foretaste of what is to come. One day we know that there will be no more sin. But until that day, we know that Jesus broke the power of sin's control. So, yeah, sin still exists, and we may be tempted but the Scripture tells us that we will be enabled to endure because God always provides a way of escape. Heaven will have no temptation. Praise the Lord for that. But if we are alive in Christ, even now, sin has no control. That is the first fruits of what is to come, a foretaste of something better yet ahead. What I'm trying to say here is that we are not in some kind of holding pattern until Jesus returns. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, moment by moment, day by day. The power of the resurrection began the moment you believed. And he who began a good work in you is faithful to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So walk in what God has made possible in Christ. Look at how he continues in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. 
But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Here's where we see Paul's practical application to the truth he's been teaching. And since you are dead to sin and alive to God, alive in Christ, now, because of those two things, you have the freedom to choose. You see, apart from Christ, it, the Bible tells us very clearly, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And telling a person who is ruled by sin to stop sinning is like telling a man who's drowning, just swim to the shore. You're asking them to do something they are completely incapable of doing for themselves. But when you're alive in Christ, you are now introduced into a new way of life. Even though you are influenced by sin, you are no longer controlled by the power of sin. Satan can invite you to participate, but you have the ability to say no because you no longer belong to him. You belong to God through faith in Christ. It's ultimately a decision that's determined by your identity. You see, a life ruled by sin is who you were. It's not who you are. But make no mistake, Satan is a deceiver. And he'll want you to be defined by your past. He wants you to be ruled by the guilt and shame of the things that you've done. But when you are alive in Christ, your identity is determined by what Christ has done. We learn who we are through the lens of the gospel. So instead of guilt and shame, the Bible tells us you are clothed in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? You are clothed in Christ. You are covered with his grace and forgiveness. You are no longer a slave to sin. You now have the freedom to choose. But we need to face the brutal fact that until the day of Christ returns, there is a spiritual battle going on. A spiritual battle to make you believe things that are not true about who you are. And so Paul actually uses terms that come from a military context. The word for instrument in the original language was used to identify a weapon of war. And so, instruments of righteousness fight against the rule of sin. Instruments of unrighteousness fight against the rule of God. And so, as a child of God, don't fight against the rule of God by obeying sinful lusts. Don't give Satan permission to wreak havoc in your life because that's the only way it can happen. He has no power unless you give him permission. Please don't miss that. Because of the cross, the authority of Satan in your life is destroyed and he has no power unless you give him permission. And why would those who have died to the power of sin's control still willfully choose to live in sin. Instead, Paul's telling us, wage war against the rule of sin in your life. 
And this is not a war, don't miss this, this is not a war that you win by your own strength, okay? This is not a battle that you fight because of your own power. This is ultimately a battle you win by surrender. Paul says in Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit, surrender to the rule of God in your life through the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We must choose to live under the authority of God's rule. Paul presses this point even further in verse 14 when he says, for you are not under law, but under grace. The idea here is that to be under law is to be ruled by the law. To be under grace is to be ruled by grace. These ultimately are two different kingdoms that are diametrically opposed to one another. The law, as we know, reveals our sin. We learned earlier in chapter 5, verse 20, that it actually increases our sin by exposing our failure to keep it. Galatians 3.10 tells us that the law is a curse for those who are unable to fulfill it. So to live under the law is to live under a curse. It is a kingdom of condemnation. A place where you never, ever measure up. But you have been rescued from the kingdom of condemnation. And you have been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom you have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. When you are under grace, you are ruled by God's love and forgiveness. You are set free to live in faithful obedience. You are united with Christ, and so sin can no longer tell you how to live. You are free to choose. Once again, our greatest need is to become who we already are in Christ. And so let me finish with three very practical ways to to live out this identity in Christ. The first one is simple. Actually, they're all simple. The first one is learn to look at God's word and not listen to the world. Look at God's word and not listen what you hear from the world. There's a Chinese proverb that says, if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. (laughs) And what the point they're trying to make here is the reason is that the fish is so immersed in its environment, they didn't even know they're wet. They couldn't tell you what water was because it's all they've ever known. Well, the environment of our culture can be like that water that we live in. It can have the same effect on us, like a fish is immersed in water, we can become immersed in the world's way of thinking. We can adopt the opinions of patterns of of living in the world without even recognizing it. And before we know it, it's shaping who we are. It's defining our identity because of all that is happening around us. The only way, and I do mean the only way, To prevent that from happening is to be in God's word. Not just learning what it says, but internalizing the truth so we become what it says. Allowing God's truth to shape our opinions, to to shape our patterns of living. 
so that over time, we become more and more like Christ. We learn our identity by looking at God's Word, seeing ourselves through the lens of the gospel. But not only do we learn our identity by looking at God's Word, we also learn our identity, and here's the second one, by listening to God's Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but in order for me to listen well, I've got to remove all distractions. If, if I go to a restaurant, for example, that has TVs, I've got to sit with the TV back to me because if I don't, I'm going to be looking at the TV, looking at the person, looking at the TV, looking at the person. I'm constantly distracted, and I have no idea what that person is saying. And, and so I think when we spend time with the Lord, the very same thing is true. Uh, put everything else aside and just focus on what you're reading and what he's speaking into your life. Jeff recently shared a tool with me that I think is really helpful. It teaches you how to listen to God's spirit as you look at God's word. It's a tool that helps you journal your reflections so that you pause to consider what it's saying. It, it uses the acronym HEAR, H-E-A-R. And so I want to quickly walk through that with you. I think it's really helpful. The H stands for highlight. So what you're doing here as you read is you pick out one or two verses that really stood out most. It could be a phrase that was repeated or I know in my case, I'll read something and I'll think, huh, I've never thought of that before. And so it catches my attention. The next one is explain. So whenever I find that verse or two that really catches my attention, I just write it out. And I then kind of describe my observation of maybe who said it or what was going on at the time, just to kind of give it some context. And then I go to the A, which stands for apply. This is real simple. How does this truth apply to my everyday life? Did it bring a conviction of sin in my life, which definitely happens? Did it bring or uh, reveal a trap of sin that exists in the world? That's important, too. Well, whatever that is, how does it apply to your life? What does it look like to faithfully live out that truth? And then finally, the R stands for respond. And very simply, this is to respond in prayer. And I would encourage you to write that prayer out. Ask the Lord to help you grow in faithfulness as you try to become conformed, transformed by the truth of his word. It's a really simple tool, but I think it's really helpful because we learn our identity by how we look at God's word, how we listen to God's spirit. And then finally, the, the last thing, we learn our identity by living with God's people. This one may be one of the greatest challenges in the midst of all that we're facing today with what I've called the anti-gathering virus. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who are having such a difficult time with all the isolation that has taken place. People who are prone to discouragement begin to struggle with real depression. People who are prone to fear begin to struggle with real anxiety. And those who may not even struggle in those areas still feel lonely and disconnected and dry. There are so many legitimate concerns for our physical health in the world today. But I got to tell you, I'm much more concerned about the threats to our spiritual health in our world today. 
We need people. I need people to, to remind me what is good, what is right, what is true. We see it from the very beginning. God says it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for people to be isolated. We were created from community and for community. And going against God's design never goes well. And so if we want to learn our true identity in Christ, then we need to look at God's word. We need to listen to God's spirit. And we need to live with God's people so that we might be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Because what we believe will determine how we behave. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And just, I, I, I read this passage over and over, and I just think to myself for my own life, boy, why, why don't I live this truth out more consistently? I mean, this is incredible. Sin has no control. Satan has no authority. We are united with Christ so that whatever is true for him is equally true for us. So, Lord, would you please help us learn how to grow in this truth, to, to win and wage the battle against sin, not in our own strength, but through surrender. Knowing that who we are is ultimately determined by whose we are. And we, we belong to you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, that's a great truth. Just a final reminder, our greatest need is to become who we already are in Christ, to see ourselves, to find our identity through the lens of the gospel, to live in the kingdom of grace and love and forgiveness, not the kingdom of condemnation, not where we're judged by the guilt and shame of our past, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And it's day by day, isn't it? It's day by day, moment by moment, looking at God's word, listening to God's spirit, living with God's people, becoming everything that he has created us to be in Christ. That's beautiful. Thank you, Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being in your word and allowing that to penetrate our hearts so that we now can behave according to what we believe, that our actions would flow out of our convictions, and that we might become everything that we already are in Christ. May we see ourselves through the lens of the gospel, and Lord, protect us from judging ourselves or from identifying ourselves from what we see happening in the world around us. It's not who we are. We belong to you, and help us to find our identity in that truth. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.